Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding way, way, way back. Not to the beginning, but uh, definitely to the, uh, the the beginnings of TSP, all the way back to 2012. So we're going back about eight years today, almost eight years exactly. Again, I've I've been trying to pick episodes that were right around the date. So um, this is a, about a month uh, shot, or a month more than exactly eight years old. This is January twelfth, twenty twelve, and uh, this is uh, the only show like it I ever did. And this was before I did uh, played played music on the air uh, regularly, like our song of the day type thing. And I've been thinking about this episode that's so old now and thinking maybe it would be a good idea to do some more episodes like this. I don't think every song we play rates a, a show like this, but there are some. Uh, this was Billy Joel's Allentown, and the episode was called History Lesson, Prophecy, or Both. And what I do in this episode is, and it'll, it's how when I say we're going to go ahead and hear it, we'll skip my intro from back then. And what I did at the very beginning of this episode was I played the song you've probably heard a million times in your life, Allentown by Billy Joel. And I just let you listen to it. And if you haven't heard this, and if you've never deeply contemplated the words of this song, I then go through this song and I pick it apart, word by word, line by line, piece by piece. And I feel not uniquely qualified, but I feel well qualified to do this with this particular song, as I did back then, because I grew up in the exact place that this song is about. Because this song isn't really just about Allentown. This is about Pennsylvania. From Philly to Pittsburgh to, to Erie County to, to the northeastern corner of the state. I don't even remember what's up there. Um, but everything, Berwick, Scranton, where I grew up in Schuylkill County. This is about Pennsylvania, and it's beyond about Pennsylvania. It's about the region. It's about the region. Allentown just happens to really typify the region. Additionally, in addition to growing up, only about 45 minutes away from Allentown. It's about a 45-minute drive from where I went to high school to Allentown, Pennsylvania. I lived just north of Allentown. I lived in a place called Northampton. And Northampton is the Pennsylvania that they put on the cover of a magazine. It really is. It is. If Norman Rockwell was talking about Pennsylvania, he would have talked about a place like Northampton. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. But it was a maybe 10-minute drive down just as soon as you crossed the interstate, as soon as you crossed... The interstate you from from Northampton and, and went on the south side of the interstate, you were in Allentown. I mean, it was right there. And then Allentown is bigger than Allentown. Allentown is, you know, we talk about things like uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul or Dallas-Fort Worth. Think of that on a miniature scale with Allentown-Bethlehem-Easton. And I think I use A-B-E in this uh, in this episode a couple times. I think I say that. I don't know if I explained what it meant, but it means Allentown-Bethlehem-Easton. 
It's like this this micro metroplex, and it was in its heyday a place where blue collar workers really really thrived. And when I lived there, we would drive around sometimes, and my son would ask me, "What what is up with all these you know rusty looking buildings? Why are they here?" And I'm like, "Well, when they failed, just no one thought it was worth it to tear them down." And it's steel mills, but it's not just the mills. It's the fabrication plants, and it's the the industrial uh, component. You know, it's the, the places that used the material and made things for the steel mills. And you can go all over Pennsylvania, all over Ohio, all over the region, and you can find examples of this. So I grew up with this. I grew up, and my father. And my uncles were the generation that this song was told in the perspective from. When you hear things in this song like our graduations hang on the wall, but they never really helped us at all, it's my dad's generation that that statement was being made on behalf of. When you hear our fathers fought the Second World War, that's my grandfather's generation, the, the men that fought the Second World War. And, you know, it's... It's interesting, and I don't know that I really drove this point home in the original episode of this, but you'll hear me talk about, you'll me hear me mention Korea. But it was our, our, our fathers in this song, my grandparents' generation, were, who fought the Second World War. They also fought the Korean War. And it was my father's generation that fought the Vietnam War. And I'm not going to say anything about what this song's saying about that, because I, I want you to wait and hear the original way that I covered it. But it's... It's kind of fitting that the Korean War is just kind of forgotten in this song. Because let me tell you, it was forgotten in this time and in this place. It was called the Forgotten War for a reason. I remember one time, I was pretty young, I was somewhere in my teens, maybe a year before I joined the Army, somewhere in that range. I had killed a deer. And my uncle and I decided we were going to stop paying the butcher to make sausage for us, and we were going to make our own sausage. So we ground it, and we mixed in the pork with it. It was the first time I'd ever made sausage. And we, we cooked some up, and it was it was really good. And we got the grinder out and the sausage maker attachment. And about 15 minutes of that, put everything away. And he said, I know somebody that has a sausage stuffer. And a couple days later, we took all the meat, and we went to this farmhouse. And uh, this old farmer that owned the place welcomed us, and he brought us into his shop, and he had this, it looked like this giant industrial crank-driven you know, thing that was actually a sausage stuff. It looked like something you mixed painted or something to me. And he taught me how to stuff sausage, how to feed the casings on, how to turn it, how to, how to, how to work the, the sausage, how to twist it, and all that stuff. And we, we had a really good time together. And I always liked meeting older men like that when I was a kid because you learned so much from them. And he said, "Hey, uh, there's about a pound and a half of this stuff here that uh, we don't have. We're out of casing. Why don't we just fry it up as like burgers and eat it?" And I said, "And this just give you an idea of the generation." I said, "Well, if it's okay with your wife," he said, "Oh, it's okay with her, and she'll cook it." He didn't ask. He he just made that, oh, she'll cook it. All right. So he goes in, tells her, because she fries it up. And we're sitting there eating dinner with each other. 
And something came up, and he said the war. And he seemed somewhere in, like younger than my, da my granddaddy, but somewhere in that range. And I said, oh, World War II. And I saw his face, and he was not upset with me. I felt bad, but I could tell also he was not upset with me. There was a, a distance and a sorrow in his face, and he looked at me and said, no, Korea. And I've never forgotten that. And those men are part of this story in this song, too. They just don't get mentioned. But that is the father's. The father's being spoken of here. So we, we tend to think it's so one-dimensionally with generations. But when you say your fathers fought the Second World War, well, most of them did. And I say that in this episode. Most of the people that you knew that were old men were, were, were veterans. Almost everybody I knew that was my dad's age or older was a Vietnam veteran. And almost everybody that was older than that was either a Korean War veteran, also a Vietnam veteran, or a World War II veteran. But some of them were old enough that they were kind of too old for World War II, at least to be drafted. A lot of them volunteered anyway. But it's that whole block of men that raised families between the 30s and the 60s. And that next group is all the kids who grew up from the 60s to the early 80s. And they were our fathers, my generation's fathers, the kids that grew up in the 70s and 80s in this area. That's the story of this song. That's where it comes from. So when you hear me talk about this and you say, how does he absolutely know that? Because I lived there. Because I knew those old men that were my father's fathers. Because I remember that old man sitting at his home dinner table that night. And what would that have been over 30 years later? And I remember the way he looked when I said, oh, World War II. And the look was, no one ever remembers, no one wants to remember, but I remember. I remember all of this. And that, you know... What I also say in this episode is it was when I came home from the military myself and when I went back to this place and part of me tried to stay because I got my fishing rod out and I went to the old creeks that I knew that they hadn't screwed up yet. And I even went to some creeks that were now fishable that weren't when I left because they cleaned up the environment some. And I went up the old mountains that I hunted. And I remembered all the things about the place that I loved. I took my walk from where I grew up up, up to, uh, to New Hampshire, to the White Mountains, to get my head back together. And then I went back again. After, after my section hike on the Appalachian Trail, I went back again. I went home. And I wanted, I wanted to be happy about being there. But I looked around, and it was the Pennsylvania that I was promised, but I never found. It was still lacking. And the people that I went to school with were working swing shift jobs for less money than their fathers earned at their age. And all of the, the good things that were promised 
were gone. And they sure didn't seem like they were coming back. And I can tell you, in spite of all of the positive economic things that are going on right now, and all the opportunities that are there, there's still a lot of these places that are no different than they were when this song was written all the way back in 1982. And there's still people sitting there waiting for it to change. That's what this song's about and more. So let's go ahead and listen to it now. And then you'll hear Jack Spierko from 2012 pick it apart. And then I'll play it one more time for you at the end. And if you've never heard this song before, I promise you, today, or if you've never heard this uh, episode before, and if you've never maybe on your own picked this song apart, what I promise you today is you'll probably hear two songs. You'll hear the one you remember that had the cheesy, terrible video from the 1980s that played on the radio until you were tired of it. And then when you hear it the second time, you're going to hear the song completely differently. With that, let's go on back to January 12, 2012. It came out in 1982.
Well, there you go. And the song was a pretty big hit for Billy Joel, and it was really popular, if you might imagine, in eastern Pennsylvania where I went to high school. I went to high school there in the mid-80s, uh, you know, 85, 86, 87, that type of thing. And um, it was, you know, it only came out a few years before that, and uh, we were living in Florida at the time, but we were from the region, and we knew we were going to move back there eventually, so... As a young kid, you know, I listened to that song and with a, not a complete understanding of it, especially as when I was really young. It was just a song like any other song on the radio. And along the way, I began to develop an understanding of what the words are really about. But then you go and you live life and went off in the military and I went off and built a career and everything. And, you know, things happen that make you go back to things you remember. Once in a while, you hear a song and you listen to words and they mean something to you more than they've ever meant to you before. And you can see them for a history lesson, and you can see them for a future-looking statement. And it's weird that an artist can be this dead on. So let's look a little bit at some of the lyrics that you just heard. And I'm going to explain them to you. And some of them are real easy to understand, and some of them not so much. And I'm going to tell you how they apply today. Um, well, we're living here in Allentown, and they're closing all the factories down. Out, of Beth out in Bethlehem, they're killing time, filling out forms, standing in line. We don't do a lot of form filling out and standing in line today, but what they were talking about is as the steel and coal and associated industries began to fall off in this, this part of Pennsylvania, there was massive unemployment. Now, in 82, there was pretty bad unemployment across the whole country, Kind of like right now. But the, the industrial uh, coal, iron, steel fueled region that ran from you know, New Jersey all the way out into the Midwest, out into Illinois and, uh, and through uh, Ohio and things like that, man, just took it on the chin. So everybody was out looking for a job. And everybody was pretty distraught and disgusted. So the, the song actually starts out, in the 1982 world. It starts out in the present. And it immediately takes a shift back, a full generation back, all the way back from 1982 to, let's say, 1942 in the second verse. The, our fathers fought the Second World War, spent their weekends on the Jersey Shore, met our mothers in the USO, asked them to dance, danced with them slow. So... I think there's so much more in that little verse that, that means something to us today that we've forgotten. We don't understand how it applies to us. Let me explain to you what it meant if you were spending your weekends at the Jersey Shore when you were living in eastern Pennsylvania. It meant you were a blue-collar person living a damn good life. I see. I, I think people just think, well, it, it rhymed and it sounded cool, and that's what went on up there. It, it, it is, but it had this deeper meaning. You know, the, Billy was from the area; he understood what he was talking about here. If you went down and hung out and had, you know, you know, a little vacation place or, or whatever, maybe split it with a couple friends, and you took turns using it or whatever down on the Jersey Shore, and you lived in Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton, if you lived in that ABE area or anywhere around there then that meant you were doing good, and you probably had a job working for one of the steel mills. That was the job to have, man. You didn't have to have a college degree. Uh, some of the people there did, but a lot of guys just made it, made it work for themselves. And uh, you got paid good. You got paid really good. You had benefits. You had, you had people looking out after you. Your job was secure. Your job was stable. 
you're, you could get your buddy a job when the next time a job opened. If you knew somebody, they could get you in. I mean, it was the American dream all from the World War II forward till the collapse began there. And then it goes on, and we're living here in Allentown, but the restlessness was handed down, and it's getting very hard to stay. So their fathers, who were these people that went out and fought a war for their country, and then came home and settled down, and kind of got their, their just this part of them out, Right? They went out and they did something so hard and so horrific and so tough. And I'm going to tell you, when you lived in that area and you talked to old men, right? 1982, when a guy was an old man, you know, he was in his 60s and, and, and older. He, nine times out of ten, you were talking to a World War II vet. It was like everybody went, especially from that area. If you weren't drafted, you, 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 you signed up. You know, my grandfathers both, uh, d decided to go. They, neither one of them were drafted. Uh, they both joined. One joined the Navy, one joined the Army. It was just what you did. But they, you know, they danced with their moms, they hung out on the Jersey Shore, they had this, this active, vibrant life, and then they settled in to this lifestyle and were happy with a good job and a good pay and everything else. But kids started wanting to leave. They wanted to go find something more. But let me tell you something about growing up in that area. I was told things like, now my Uncle Mike didn't work in Allentown, he worked down in Philly. But he was a machinist. Now he had even gone to college. But he had a job where he didn't really need a degree. And he liked his job. He worked for Boeing. And he was a Boeing machinist, and he worked on stuff to build airplanes. And I was always told, you don't even need to go to college if you don't want to. We want you to, but if you don't want to go, just get really good grades in math and science, and Uncle Michael gave you in with him at Boeing. This was the mentality of the entire area. If you had an uncle or a father or a brother that had gotten into one of these good-paying industrial jobs, even in the coal region where I lived, it was kind of in this already in this decay state, there were still places like where people really wanted to work. Uh, where I lived, there was a little town called Cresona. And Cresona had a big plant called Cresona Aluminum. And they paid well for the area. And you got overtime. You know, you worked swing shift, but hey, it was worth doing. And this was the mentality. If you knew somebody and they could get you in, you're, you don't leave, Johnny. Stay here where you'll be looked after. So the restlessness to, to leave, to go elsewhere, was constantly, even though to, the kid, what it was is the kids, we weren't stupid. We could look around and we could see it falling in. But our fathers, our fathers who fought the Second World War, right, and 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 our, our our fathers who were in the Korean War and the beginning of Vietnam, and we're going to get to that in a minute in a way that many people that have heard this song never understand. But they had this; they had vested their entire lives in this. See, and in the the old men, the World War II generation. These guys had, most of them were not like today. They weren't 18-year-old kids when they went off to war. They were in their 20s. And when you were 21, 22 years old in 1938, and you lived in a place like this, and you worked a blue-collar job, the first thing you did was go get a house so you could start building a family. And they left. And these guys had mortgages on their house for $1,300, $1,500 for a three-bedroom house with a piece of land, a little homestead, just like the one I grew up in. And when they went off to World War II, if they didn't get killed, by the time they came home, their house was paid for. 
the inflation that happened during that period. They had military pay. They only needed so much of their money. These were men that cared about their family. They were doing this for a purpose, not for a job. They sent that money home. The woman that stayed home put the money on the house because they knew the value of the house. They paid the house off. The women went to work for the first time in America. It turned into two-household income before everybody was doing it. There was prosperity there, and they had no debt. And these older people worked their ass off for the next 50 years. And they believed they were doing the right thing for their kids and their grandchildren. So when those kids and grandchildren wanted to leave what they had put so much into, they said, no, don't leave. You'll have Uncle Mike or your brother or your cousin to look after you. You can see this in a lot of movies. You want to see this? Go watch the movie Rudy. It's not based on total reality. But look at the first part. The first part of the movie where he's working in the mill with his brother. and he's being, That was every kid in the area, especially the people my father's age. Because this song's about my father's generation, not mine. My generation was the next one that was being handed down to. So that's what was going on there. And at that point, we're back to the future, uh, or back to the present, I guess you would say, 1982. Well, we're waiting here in Allentown for the Pennsylvania we never found. For the promises our teachers gave... If we worked hard, if we behaved. And see, this is what we were told. Even my generation was told this. Work hard, go to school, get good grades. There's a wonderful thing here for you. There's a future for you. We were promised there was this painted picture of what the place would be. And again, this is more my father's generation than mine. I'm just telling you the same, even though it was already the writing was on the wall, there was a song about it. The message was still being sent from that generation. The world where my grandparents and my, my, you know, my great uncles and my great aunts and a huge extended family in the, in the community or the Ukraine community, the Slovak community, the Irish communities, all these older people were still telling the kids, work hard, behave, get good grades. Why wouldn't you tell a kid that? It even sounds like a good thing to say today, right? But then we go to the next line. And this is so very important. And you start to really see 2012. So the graduations hang on the wall, but they never really helped us at all. No, they never taught us what was real, iron and coke, chromium steel. One thing I'm going to tell you, first of all, a lot of people don't know what coke is. Coke is a fuel made from bituminous coal. See, and iron and steel were what the region made. And it was a great region to make it because it was rich with coal. So you could take the coal right from the ground, right to the mill, process it into coke. And there were different regions and different, you would call them, uh, countries within Pennsylvania. Iron country, steel country, zinc country, and then the two big ones, anthracite country and bituminous country. Anthracite was the hard coal. Burns really, really hot. A lot of it was exported. A lot of it was burnt in coal burners and furnaces right by the people that did the mining to heat their homes with radiator systems. But that soft coal, that bituminous coal, could be made into coke. It burned very, very hot, very, very long, and as coal goes, it burns quite clean. Now, it makes a lot of mess when you make it, but once it's made, it's great for refining steel. So that's what that was about. So they went to school, and they worked hard. 
And this is not the college layer at this point. The college layer was the restless generation that went out and studied technology and management and things like that, and they left. Today, this song applies to the college generation. Now think about this. We've basically made a college degree today equivalent to the value of a high school diploma in 1982. That's why it works so well. But these kids, they went to school, they got good grades, and then they went and got a job in the mill, and all the stuff they were told they had to learn in school didn't help them at all. It was not about the high school diploma. It wasn't the math. That they, all the stuff that they were told they needed to know was worthless to them when they got to the mill and started busting their ass. And when the mill started to collapse, that diploma did nothing for them. They couldn't fall back on it. They had no other skill set. That was all that they had. And we'll keep going. And we're waiting here in Allentown, but they've taken all the coal from the ground. And the union people crawled away. So the unions told these guys, hey, don't worry, we got your back. It's okay. We'll negotiate you better benefits. We'll get you a raise. We'll get you more time off. Don't worry, it's fine. And eventually it wasn't fine anymore. Companies figured out, you know, unless I'm building a skyscraper, I don't really need grade A premium steel and the Japs and the Chinese make it cheap. Let's start importing this stuff. Come on, we're building products for planned obsolescence anyway. But see, here's a bigger lesson, and I kind of foreshadowed this yesterday. The reason that the region fell apart is everything was built with a mining philosophy versus a farming philosophy. When you're building businesses and when you're building economies, there's two ways to do it. There's farming and there's mining. Mining is like drilling for oil or mining for coal. You have a finite resource, and I don't care how much of it's there, eventually it has to run out. And you do damage to the surrounding area through its extraction. A farming economy, a farming business, and this is, this is a metaphor, it doesn't have to be direct. Everything can be continuously regenerated. It's sustainable. It doesn't go away. So mining for energy is a fossil fuel. Farming energy is a wind farm or a solar farm. And both of those technologies have limitations But you get the point. They are sustainable. And if we actually put effort into them, we could make them regenerative. Well, mining is not just about iron and coke and chromium steel and oil and gas and sun and wind. Mining and farming are about the way you run a business or an economy. And leading up to the economic collapse of 2008, the reason I could tell you with absolute certainty... In June of 2008, when I first started doing this show, protect your money, the crash is coming, is because I know what mining does. Because as a young kid that hunted deer and squirrels in the mountains of Pennsylvania, I walked across the stripping holes that the strip miners left behind. And I've looked at places where they hadn't mined since the 1930s and still nothing was growing. There was nothing but black coal slush and nothing grew in it. And it will take longer than I will walk the planet for topsoil to build up on top of that and anything to ever grow there again. And I watched the water leach into the creeks around me and turn the water that my grandfather told me a long time ago that the brook trout would swim up there. They looked like salmon when they were going to spawn. And you could just literally go out there and, and pull them out of the water. And that water today, if you put a carp in it, it would die. I saw that. And when I see the same thing, I know what the results are. We were strip mining the economy. That's what it means when you're giving people loans to create money who you know have no hope of repaying it. 
That's when you're doing high-velocity trading where people are trading a stock and they're holding it for 30 seconds. You're going to hear about that next week from Mike Gazier. They hold it for 30 seconds and they make a million dollars. What value did they bring to anybody? Strip mine, strip mine, strip mine. They've taken all the coal from the ground and the union people crawled away. They've strip mined everything. And the people that promised you your prosperity, they got wealthy and they left. Haunting, isn't it? That this song was written in 1982. If only we had listened. Who knew that a pop artist was this wise? Now this is the part that especially, if you weren't around in the 80s and you never saw the video, I think a lot of people have heard this. I think there's a lot of people that have heard this song so many times they could sit and listen to it on the radio and sing it and they have no idea what this verse means or what it's even about. Every child had a pretty good shot to get at least as far as their old man got. But something happened on the way to that place. They threw an American flag in our face. Do you know what that is? That's your Vietnam War. That's your Vietnam War. That's the kid that worked hard, behaved, got good grades, went and got Uncle Mike to get him in at the mill. 18, 19, 20 years old, busting his ass, building his life, believed he would be, he would spend his weekends on the Jersey Shore like his old man, believed he would have the prosperity of his old man, and got a letter and said, you're drafted. And the people that were like my father's age and older, it wasn't like the old men. It wasn't the same number, right? The old men, the guys in their 60s, they all went to World War II. I mean, it was like very, very rare that you would find a guy that didn't go. And if you did, he didn't even want to tell you he didn't go. He was like embarrassed that he didn't go. I can't think of one I know that didn't go. I know all my uncles, my great uncles, all of them went. All my, my grandfather's brothers, my, you know, my grandmother's brothers, every, every one. If I went into, I used to, when I was a little kid, my grandfather used to take me to a bar. Yes, a bar as a kid. And I turned out okay, shockingly enough. Pennsylvania in a cold region, the bars are totally different places. They're family gathering spots. And all the old men would sit around and they'd put me up on a bar stool next to them and they'd give me pistachio nuts from the machine. They were like a quarter and every guy in there would go through his pockets and give me some money to go get some pistachios. And the barkeep, Sam, he'd come up and say, what are you drinking? You know, and it's Coke, right? You can hear Coca-Cola, you have a beer. You know, and they, they never charged a kid for a soda in that bar, ever. And you'd sit there and you'd listen to these old men talk. And they had, you know, tattoos of the ships that they were on. And, and that was what our view of serving a country was all about. And we'd already been through Vietnam. You'd think we would have learned, but no, they still had it. So imagine what it was like, 1968, 1969, 1970, when these kids were getting these notices to go off to war. What do you think the old vets were telling them? Ah, you go serve your country. You go protect us from the communists. And look what happened when we came home. When we came home, we had the GI Bill and the college fund, and we built the highways, and this entire thing. Because remember, the collapse hadn't come yet. There was people still had jobs. Everything was working. There was still the tail end of the prosperity of that generation. Go serve, and when you come home, your country will welcome you back. There'll be parades for you, and there'll be a job for you. And no one... No one ever can't find a job for a vet. That was the mentality. They got the American flag thrown right in their face because they went over and fought a war with no clear purpose, with no clear objective, and no clear way to victory. They came home and their country didn't want them, and there were no jobs. And this had a much broader impact on the nation than just those who went. 
The man who had the guy working next to him on the line leave that he was friends with. He went to school. See, there's a small town mentality here. They think kids that grow up in bigger cities today will never understand. You went, you graduated. You knew every kid in your graduating class. And if you went and worked in the same place he did, you were close to, that's why you were in the same place. That's why you, so he went and you didn't. And then either he didn't come home and you didn't even see the promise realized. Or he came home and he was never quite right again. Or he came home and he didn't get a job. Or he came home in a wheelchair. Or he came home with injuries. And you were left with nothing. What does that sound like? How many of our guys are coming home from Afghanistan and Iraq today? Now, they weren't drafted. But they're coming home. And when you come home as a soldier, let me tell you what you're thinking. I'll tell you what you're thinking. Because I came home as a soldier in 1993. Everybody's going to want to talk to me. Everybody's going to want to hire me, man. I went out and served my country. I'm going to be able to get a job. It was tough for me to find my first job. I took whatever I could get. It's a lot tougher now. These guys are coming home disabled. They're com- A lot of them are coming home. And f- you look at them and they don't look like there's anything wrong with them. And they seem like they're okay. And they even think they're okay. And they don't even figure out. They don't even figure out for... A month or two after they get home, if there's even anything wrong with them. Some of them won't figure out how badly damaged they are inside, how broken they are inside for a year or more. But unlike our fathers who fought the Second World War and spent their weekends on the Jersey Shore, they're not coming home to get jobs working in the mill or building a highway. They're coming home to fill out forms and stand in lines. Again, this song was written in 1982. And let me finish it up for you because I want to I want to bring in another thing from 1967 that's going to tie this all home and really probably hit you hard when you figure out what's actually gone on in the world. Well, I'm living here in Allentown, and it's hard to keep a good man down, but I won't be getting up today, and it's getting very hard to stay, and we're living here in Allentown. So in other words, I want to work. I want a job. I'm a good man. I believe in myself. I believe in my family. I believe it's worth but I'm just laying in bed today because there's no point. It's hopeless. There's nothing I can do. And it's getting very hard to stay. And people left. It's what they did. They went elsewhere and they found other opportunities. And the region has never recovered. It's not a horrible place to live in a lot of areas. I'm still very proud to be from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, a graduate of Pottsville High School. I enjoyed living just north of Allentown in a little place called Northampton. And we lived there for three years while I was the regional manager for Fluke Networks. It was beautiful. It was like living in a Norman Rockwell town. There's still a lot of good there, but there's not a lot of opportunity for young people. Doesn't that sound like most of America today? There's still a lot of good, but there's not a lot of opportunity. So it's getting very hard to stay, but now where do we go? Now what do we do? Well, how did this happen? What was this? Was this just people that hated this generation screwing them over? No. It was a shift. It was a shift that's very, very hard to understand unless you are willing to pull yourself back much, much further. I'm going to play something else for you. It's going to be much shorter. A little clip from a movie from 1967 called The Graduate. And the movie really wasn't about this scene. It was a much different movie than it was about you know an older woman seducing a younger man and that type of thing. But this scene told you everything you needed to know 
to avoid being crushed by what happened in the coal region and in the steel region. See if you can figure it out. I'll be back as soon as it's over to explain it. What are you going to do now? I was going to go upstairs for a minute. Oh, I meant with your future. Your life. Well, that's a little hard to say. Ben. Excuse me. Mr. McGuire. Ben. Mr. McGuire. Come with me for a minute. I want to talk to you. Excuse us, Joanne. Of course. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Well, that's a very well-known scene, and the young man's just graduated. Everybody wants to know what he's going to do, and his, his father's friend, Mr. McGuire, pulls him aside, gives him some advice, and says, you know, there's a great future in plastics. And most people that look back at that just think about it as, well, you know what? The plastic industry exploded. It became really, really, really a, a, a great industry. We have companies like DuPont today that have made billions, and everywhere you look, there's plastic. I'm sitting in my office right now, and I see many things, including uh, the, uh, the, the, the frame on the monitor in front of me, the keyboard, the mouse, made from plastic. There's plastic components to the headset that's sitting behind me. My keychain's sitting there with a plastic resin uh, uh, thing that, that, that you know my pepper spray's contained in, and there's plastic wrapped around the remote control for my Volkswagen Jetta. There's plastic everywhere. What a genius piece of advice. Hey, young man, go into plastics. It's not developed yet, but it's going to be big. That's not what it's about. It's really not. You see, in the, in, in the, 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 the timeline of, of this movie, I mean, the reality of the storyline itself comes from earlier than even 67. That's just when the movie was made. The original book, I think, was written in 63. And when you're writing a book like that, it takes a long time. So you're going back into the 50s, right? So by 67, it wasn't really that big a deal to go into plastics. But when the book was, because that whole transition had really transpired. And it begun to be seen. But what it was really about, was a shift from industry to technology. A shift from labor to service. The entire economy of the United States was shifting. If you were in the iron and coal and blue-collar manufacturing sector in the late 60s, you had a target on your head. It was only a matter of time until somebody picked you off. That was the message of One Word Plastics. Don't go where everybody thinks you should go. Because let me tell you, 1967 college graduate getting a good job at a managerial level for Bethlehem Steel sounded like a great idea. Was it? Not really. Not really. Now, did you have more options? Did your graduation hanging on the wall give you more fallback than the high school student that grew up blue collar was told go work where your Uncle Mike works? Yeah. Still wasn't a good piece of advice. If you wanted to excel and develop and develop a skill set, You went into the technology and services sector in the 60s and 70s. And when everything collapsed with the recession of the 70s, those were the people that kept their jobs. Those were the people that moved on. Those were the people that figured it wasn't easy to stay anymore, and they went somewhere else. And when they went somewhere else, they found something else. It was a shift. It was a shift 
and people were caught blindsided by the shift, and the shift rolled over them like a Mack truck. And the region that was supposed to be so wonderful in Pennsylvania in the song is today known as the Rust Belt. So much for living like your father and spending your weekend on the Jersey Shore. So that's that's the reality. So what does that bring us to today? I'll tell you what it is. People look at today and go, well, it's still technology, Jack. Come on. It's not. It's a new technology. See, in in this timeline, in the 80s, think about what a computer was. It was nothing compared to what it was today. And there was the precursor of the Internet, the military and uh, educational use, uh, institutions were using it, but it was nothing like what we have as the Internet today. And the primary means of communication around the world was voice-based communication. Even the first cell phones, they were just voice communication over a different infrastructure. If you wanted to talk to somebody, you did it with voice. Today, you do it with data. Today, your cell phone is a data tool, not a voice tool. You might talk on it, but you're running on a data network for all intents and purposes. You're texting pictures. Information flies at the speed of light. Outsourcing is easier forever. Trading and manipulating markets is easier and more accessible by more people. Communication walls have been broken down. A maniac like me with a microphone and an internet connection can build a business. It's, but, but see, people, it's the internet. No, it's the shift. Voice to data. And this is the important thing to understand. The shift to plastics. First plastics were invented in the 1800s. Major plastic productivity went up in the 30s. The full ramifications of the shift were not realized until the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. It took that long for it to wash out the other end. We don't know how long it's going to take for it to wash out the other end of this Internet data transfer. We're still in the middle of the shift. It hasn't even started yet. The Internet's 15, 16 years old in its modern form. It's not even an adult yet. You have no idea what this shift is going to do long term. But you do know that it ain't going back to the way it was. It's getting very hard to stay because staying is stupid. You need to evolve. You need to move on. You need to figure out where the future lies. Because this shift is here and you ain't putting the genie back in the bottle. And some of you guys that think the collapse will look like Little, little House on the Prairie when it's over, don't get it. Technology's not going away. We could have grid failures, infrastructure failures, and the second it fails... As soon as you pick the bodies up off the ground, they're going to start rebuilding it because we know how to do it now. It doesn't go backwards. It only goes forwards. And those that fight the progression of technology, whether it's from stone to bronze or from voice to data or anywhere in between, we can look at history and every one of them had their Allentown experience. Every single place, every single group of people that fought the shift were murdered by the shift. Maybe not directly dead, murdered. But their lifestyles, their hopes, their dreams, crushed. The Occupy Wall Streeters, a lot of them are college kids. A lot of them are. I'm surprised how many older people got involved with that. Changed my, my view on it a lot. But these college kids, their graduations are hanging on the wall and they're not helping them very much at all. All they have to show for their graduations that hang on the wall are sixty or $70,000 or $80,000 worth of student debt and no job. And they're waiting there in Allentown. And a lot of them, lieutenants, captains in the military, 
took that degree and said, I'm going to do something first, I'm going to serve my country. And they went over and fought a war. And basically they're having the flag thrown in their face today. doesn't mean that nobody recognizes them, but what were they promised? Hey, this military experience is going to help you get a job. And there's a lot of people that would like to hire them. It's not the people. See, this is what people don't understand. There doesn't always have to be a villain. There doesn't always have to be a bad guy for stuff to go wrong. It was nobody's fault that a hurricane destroyed a town. It was nobody's fault that an earthquake destroyed a town. Now, it's somebody's fault if it's not responded to as best that it can be. But I think a lot of people that do that kind of blaming don't understand the calamity around them when that's going on. I want to explain how long it can take for these shifts to fully play out. The biggest shift of the last 200 years, the biggest, most impactful shift that there was, was the move from horse-drawn carriages to automobiles. Nothing else has had as monumentous an effect on every human being, especially in America. In 1900... If you wanted some milk and you didn't own a cow and you didn't have a neighbor that owned a cow and you had to go into town to get milk, it was an event. You had to get prepared and get ready and go out, and that's why there was preparedness mentality in the early part of our country. And you got on a horse or you got on a horse and buggy and you went to town, and it might take you all day to make your trip. So you would buy enough to make it a month if you could, and things that are perishable like milk, well, you'd have to figure out how to get by. You'd have to figure out how to put some up and can it or make butter or cheese out of it. It wasn't just because we like butter and cheese because they stored better than raw milk in its raw form. And that's why a lot of people owned a cow. Well, into this came who? The milkman. That's where the milkman came from. Man, that's one of the few things that you need fresh all the time if you're going to have it, not on a cow. So in the smaller communities that were kind of the, 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 the suburbs of the day, The milkman could go to the dairy, load everything up in his little milkman car, and go deliver. People got used to this. People liked it. The car came along. And the milkman began a slow death, but the milkman was around in the 50s. But don't make any mistake about it, the car killed the milkman. Even though he was here for a lot longer, he was already dead. He just didn't know it yet. Because when we came up with, for the first time ever, People that didn't live in a downtown area that could walk to a store had something new in their life called weekly shopping. It did not exist if you were a suburbanite or a rural person in 1900. It didn't exist. You couldn't do it once a week. It was impossible. So fresh things like eggs were often delivered. When I was a kid in the 80s, we had what we called, the, the, we had a milkman, we had a farmer. The farmer brought us things like eggs and meat, right? He would come to the house, and he, it was always funny because he'd say to my grandmother, you want a ham this week? And if she did, she'd say, yeah, I want a ham. He goes, which half of the ham do you want, right? And what he meant is the bottom or the top. And you know what my grandmother would tell this guy? The better half. Whichever one's better out of that cut. Whichever one is less fat or more meat or it looks like a better piece of meat. Give me the better one. I don't care if it's top or bottom. And they had that. And he, they, this guy had been coming there for 20 years. He knew what she was going to say. He still asked her. It was their thing. You know, and he brought us fresh eggs and meat. And we would get, we would get like beef from the guy, you know, sirloin steak, uh, bacon. I mean, this guy had great bacon. But these two guys that came to the house, it was actually, it was a butcher and a farmer. And the farmer brought the milk and the eggs. I'm sorry. And the butcher, they called him, was the guy named Arcee. He brought all the meat products. And, uh, I don't know when they stopped coming. They were still coming when I went away to the Army in, in what, 89. Uh, but I guarantee you they're not there now. 
I guarantee you they're not there now. In the 80s, I still remember people that had what you called stolen milk crates. Remember? Because the milk would come, you know, four, four glass jugs of milk in a crate. And what do we store in them? Record albums. Seen any record albums lately unless you're a collector? <laughs> that was the shift of the automobile. And there were still remnants of those run over by the shift. But boy, it wasn't a career path choice in 1950, was it? The writing was on the wall the day that Ford made mass-producing automobiles practical. There were, and, and the milkman and the, the, the butcher are just one example of hundreds of professions, small entrepreneurial professions that went away. Because now we could centralize distribution, and that shift began all the way back then. But it took almost 70, 80 years to fully kill off everything that was going to kill. And then we went through a technology shift. And that technology shift, that shift to plastics, to service and technology versus labor and industry, moved even faster. And it, it really was kind of coming to a head in the 60s. And in 20 years, it laid waste. Well, guess what? Even though I told you the Internet's about 15, 16 years old in its current form, the, the real Internet... The Internet where everybody knows what everybody's doing all the time. The real Internet where everybody's device is a data device. The real Internet where there's a Facebook and a YouTube and a Twitter. The real Internet where everybody can basically have what would be equivalent in 1982 as a seat on the U.S. Stock Exchange where you can trade in real time. That Internet is about five years old. We're five years into the shift and look at what the shift has done. Does that mean the shift's bad? It just means know that many people were caught unaware by the shift, and we don't know what it will look like in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. We have all these different problems. We have a debt crisis that I talked about earlier this week. None of that's going away, but this shift is still here. That's what the song Allentown was really all about. It was a shift, and it was an entire generation caught right in the middle of that shift. There were advised to stay. It's getting very hard to stay. Advised to stay by the prior generation that were so, they weren't bad people. They were so proud of what they did. They were, they were the greatest generation. They really, really were. They did things we cannot imagine today. They made sacrifices we can never really fully understand today. They had so much less in their good times than we have in our bad times. And they still did it. And they made it better. And they came home and they built the highways and they built the skyscrapers and they built the steel mills. And when they told Johnny and Tommy and, and Susie, hey, your future's here. You know, some small portion of you guys, 20% maybe are going to, smart kids are going to go to college. And that was good advice, sort of. But then the rest, they said, just trust your uncle. Don't take risks. See, that was the thing. They didn't want these kids to take risks. They didn't want them to become entrepreneurs and innovators. They wanted them to play it safe. They wanted them to spend their weekends on the Jersey Shore. They wanted them close. They wanted the family held together. It was very, very noble. And maybe it could have been done better. I don't know. But what I do know is the shift came. And I know that that generation got an American flag shoved in their face. And I know it wasn't just those who went, it was those that lost people who went. And it was the promise that when it was over, there would be a peace dividend. That was a very, very common word. The peace dividend. And they pissed away the peace dividend before the treaty was signed. It was already gone. 
Everything that they were promised was gone before they even got to where it was supposed to be there. Look at America today. Look at where we're headed. There's another shift. And there's, it's, it's never a shift. It's always multiple shifts. I could, I could go between 1960 and, and 1990, and I could find you a hundred major shifts in industry and service and, and, and everything else if I want to dig into it. And from 1990 to 2012, I could find you a hundred more major, major shifts. But there's the big shifts, the, from the horse to the carriage. The, from the horseless carriage to the automobile is what I'm saying. Right, that's a huge shift. From sticks and stones to steel and iron and coal. From steel and iron and coal to technologies and services based on voice communication. And that to database communications. And everywhere and every time that there's a major shift, there's a group of people that put all of their effort, all of their learning, all of their knowledge, all of their skills into the end of the last boom and are now entering the new world completely unprepared for it. That's what the song's really all about. So now I want to end today and I want to play the song for you again and I want you to listen to the words and I want you to see if the song takes a new meaning to you. And I hope I brought a little bit of a personal insight from growing up in the region where it happened to you today. And I don't want you to be depressed. I want you to realize something. This is how bad it was, and things did get better. Things can get better again, but we need to be prepared to move along with these shifts as they happen. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough before you get to know. Oh,